Ukrainian President Zelensky addressed both houses of Congress and called for a dramatic escalation of the war in Ukraine. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today we'll be talking again with Eugene Perrier. Eugene is an author, he's an activist, he's the host of the daily podcast, The Punch-Out. He also co-hosts with Rania Kalik, The Freedom Side Live, a live video show every Thursday from 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern on Breakthrough News. Eugene, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. This is our, I think it's our sixth show about Ukraine. We've been following this crisis as it's unfolded. And I think that we have really done an important job at trying to give the people in the United States especially, but people everywhere who might be relying otherwise on mainstream corporate-owned media, a way to really have an understanding of why this crisis is happening outside of the superficial but very effective demonization of Russia or whoever is America's adversary at a particular moment. And of course, as I mentioned in the beginning, Zelensky spoke before both houses of Congress. It was really quite something. He basically chastising the US government, the Biden administration for not doing more, not setting up, and he demanded or called for a no-fly zone which would require the United States to actually go to war against Russia, the other second biggest nuclear power in the world. And he did this on national TV before both houses of Congress. And it just made me think, Eugene, you know, how will this war end? How will it end? All wars have a beginning. You know, World War II ended with the unconditional surrender of Japan and the defeat of Germany, the surrender of Germany in 1945. The Korean War ended differently. There was a long, protracted stalemate. The U.S. kept bombing targets in North Korea. There was nothing left to bomb. They had destroyed everything. But the North Koreans kept fighting and fighting and fighting, trying to liberate their country until finally in July 1953, there was an armistice, a stalemate. And today that war, it's not happening, but it's still not over either. Then you have the Vietnam War. The U.S. knew it was going to lose the Vietnam War by 1968. Nixon dragged it out for another four years so he wouldn't have to take responsibility for it. Finally signed a peace agreement with the North Vietnamese. The U.S. left in 1973. And of course, because they were really defeated, uh, the Vietnamese basically liberated the southern half of Vietnam. Anyway, wars come to an end different ways, or in the case of Korea, still not ended. But what Zelensky was proposing to the U.S. Congress was not a way to end the war. It was a way to escalate the war. That line is getting traction. And it's been our position, Eugene, from the beginning that this war could have been easily avoided by a negotiated agreement with Russia. The U.S. refused to do so. And it could still end with a negotiated agreement. Anyway, your thoughts. Well, I think you're making a number of good points. I think one thing that also has to be said about Zelensky's speech to Congress and the just what I view sort of disgustingly theatrical nature of at least some parts of it was that he invoked the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and said, I have a dream. You all know that phrase and then went on to call for more escalation of the war. And if there's one thing I feel pretty confident about here, it's that the name, legacy, and memory of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. would not mitigate or would not be, you know, used in a way that's proper if it's in relationship to escalating war and militarism. So just gives you a sense, I think, of the, you know, in many ways, kind of the mendacity of the speech. But yes, I I think that when we look at what 
you know, Zelensky is proposing and what he proposed also in front of the Parliament of the United Kingdom, what he's really been proposing pretty much everywhere he has been speaking, and he's been speaking all over the place recently, is for there to be more planes, more guns, no-fly zones, weapon systems sent there. We know that the Biden administration almost immediately after he was done said they're going to be sending $800 million worth of weapons. They've already sent 600 Stinger missiles, 2,600 Javelin anti-tank rockets, and all sorts of sundry small arms and ammunition of various types in addition to vehicles and other forms of critical military aid. So right there, we can just see right away, they're pouring more and more gasoline on the fire. And, you know, it's an interesting piece because, and and I'm glad you brought up the issue of the fact that there's still the possibility of a negotiated solution because it feels like that's pretty much where we are in terms of the, the moment in this conflict. It's a bit of an inflection point because on the one hand, you have this assertion that was put forward by President Biden in the State of the Union and has been put forward by other Western leaders, although some of them are changing their tune, that there's no way this war could have been avoided. And thus, since it's just Putin the madman, the only way to really confront him is to deepen the war and to risk even a deeper conflagration because nothing will actually stop him. But we've seen some statements from other leaders that prove that not to be true. I mean, Zelensky himself, for instance, who noted this week that Ukraine will almost certainly never be able to join NATO. And of course, Boris Johnson in his, you know, relatively bellicose, but still he said this op-ed in the New York Times, I think it was a couple weeks back now, saying that everyone knows that Ukraine will not join NATO, I believe he said in the foreseeable future. French President Emmanuel Macron, who, you know, has obviously been very supportive of Zelensky in many ways, but also noted vis-a-vis the issue of how the conflict can be solved is that, well, there has to be a security architecture for Europe that includes Russia. And I, in some ways, was a little dumbfounded to hear and read some of these statements as they were coming out because this was exactly the issue that was put in front of the whole world prior to the conflict. And none of the parties that I just mentioned, you know, seemed willing to accept or even believe that these negotiating positions could have averted the war. And now they all seem to be more or less claiming that this is the only way to end the war, and certainly Ukraine and the discussions in Turkey raising the issue of of neutrality. So anyway, I just say all that just to say that the lines, if you will, of a possible solution to this have been clear going in, as we were talking about quite a bit here on this show in the lead up to this. It's been clear the entire conflict, and it's clear now. But you can see that there is a desire by, I think, the Zelensky administration and certainly the U.S. administration, I can't necessarily speak for other countries, to deepen the conflict as much as possible. You know, now whether or not they feel that they can actually defeat the Russians on the Ukrainian side or whether they think that just drastically increasing the amount of violence might, you know, give them more leverage. On the U.S. side, it really does have kind of a, you know, the U.S. wants to fight Russia to the last Ukrainian kind of feel. I mean, this came up yesterday in the White House press conference. Ryan Grimm, who's the bureau chief of The Intercept, asked White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, does Zelensky have essentially the backing of the United States to negotiate. Like if Zelensky said to Russia in a negotiation, we will be able to get the U.S. to lift XYZ sanctions if you agree to a ceasefire or withdrawal or whatever it may be, which would obviously be a big chip for Ukraine. Like, does he have that power? And Saki didn't say no, but she did everything possible to not say yes and danced around it, noted that they're the number one provider of military support, that they have been the number one ringleader in signing up countries in Europe and around the globe to try to put aggressive sanctions. And I think even to call them sanctions is a little bit of a misnomer to launch an economic war against Russia. So more or less dancing around the idea of what would have to be true, that even if Zelensky was credibly trying to argue for peace without the United States being willing to, you know, essentially give him the space, it couldn't succeed. And you didn't get an affirmation of that from the White House. So I think you have this moment where, you know, it's obvious that there's a possibility to de-escalate. It's obvious that there's a possibility to negotiate, that there always has been one, that the outlines of that are relatively clear, but you still see the United States, Ukraine, Poland as well, other nations who are pushing to escalate the conflict more and more and more with the idea of more weapons and a no-fly zone, regardless of what the actual, you know, outcome of that will be. Congress, same thing, and, you know, a complete and total war fever. So I think it's a very dangerous moment in terms of where this conflict is now. And I think there's far too much 
sort of cavalier behavior coming from both the Biden administration, the Zelensky administration, the U.S. Congress, and certain Eastern and Central European countries who seem to feel that there is a military solution to this crisis, even despite the fact that they have all, in many ways, spoken to the outlines of a diplomatic solution and not even 100% rejected it at this point, but they seem willing to deepen the conflict before they engage seriously. That's at least how it seems to me. Yeah. Putin made a couple important speeches on February 21st, a couple days before the invasion. He made the argument, and it was a historical speech. You and I have talked about it. It was he was blaming Lenin for having created Ukraine, and it was filled with you know anger and grievance about Ukraine and the fact that Ukraine was a de facto proxy government for Russia's enemies when historically Ukraine was either part of Russia or certainly its most important ally inside the USSR. He was filled with a lot of anger and provided basically a nationalist rationale. The next speech on February 24th is the day of the invasion. And it's really interesting. I really want people to find the English translation of it. You know, we hear Zelensky, we hear Biden, we hear NATO, and we hear them in all the media talking about, as you mentioned, Putin is a madman, but people don't actually haven't really studied the speeches because the speeches are very informative. He's explaining why he's about to take an action that's obviously going to be very negatively impactful on Russia, even if they were to succeed militarily, the economic war, the eviction of Russia and Russians from the global economy. These are very big decision. And he's explaining in the speech why he's come to this point. And I want to read a sentence or two from the speech, Eugene, and get you to respond. He said, it is a fact that over the past 30 years, we have been patiently trying to come to an agreement with the leading NATO countries regarding the principles of equal and indivisible security in Europe. In response to our proposals, we invariably faced either cynical deception and lies or attempts at pressure and blackmail. While the North Atlantic Alliance continued to expand despite our protests and concerns, its military machine is moving. And as I said, it's approaching our very border. And then he talks about why is this happening? Where did this insolent manner of talking down to us from the height of their exceptionalism? infallibility, et cetera. The answer is simple, he goes on. Since the weakening of the Soviet Union in the 1980s, instead of the United States looking at that as an opportunity to end the Cold War, to have a peace dividend, it made them ultra-aggressive and continued to push NATO, the U.S.-led military alliance, right up to Russia's border. And whether Ukraine is a formal member or not, the fact of the matter is the U.S. was training Ukrainian military forces. That base that was hit near Poland, American military were training there and putting all kinds of advanced weapons on Russia's 1,200-mile-long border after having canceled the Intermediate Nuclear Range Treaty, which has you know, always been understood first by the Soviets and then by the Russians as a, as a quintessential piece of the architecture of the Cold War, meaning an arms agreement that would diminish rather than increase Russia's insecurity. Anyway, it's really interesting, and maybe I'll have time to quote a couple more parts of that speech, but we never get to hear Putin. He's just demonized. But what he's saying is actually going to resonate not only with Russians, but a large part of the world that has also been treated in this kind of insolent manner and the hubris and the arrogance of America. No, I think that's a good point. And I think we've certainly seen that in a lot of the international response, even from those who have censored Russia to some degree in terms of their statements. You know, there's still quite a bit of, you know, anger you can see almost sometimes just veiled and sometimes obviously many times using very diplomatic language. But I think you can see pretty consistently, we've seen it from, you know, countries as far afield as, you know, China to South Africa to Eritrea to others who have, you know, all made various statements, you know, upholding the value and the importance 
importance of the UN Charter and sovereignty and countries not to to feel like they can just unilaterally invade people and you know not to have to fear that they themselves will be unilaterally invaded, but have also been making the point very strongly, very similar to what Putin is saying, that the actions of the United States, the actions of NATO, have set the stage for this, as they've set the stage for so many conflicts all around the globe by presenting aggressive escalation as somehow defensive measures. And certainly what Putin is speaking to there in that speech is exactly what now you're allegedly not allowed to say, at least not in the U.S. mainstream media without being called some sort of treasonous, you know, Putin acolyte or whatever it may be, which is the ultimate role that Western policy can play. But we know that as far back as 1989, in the first George H.W. Bush administration, the decision was in fact made that NATO had to expand. It had to expand eastward, that the primary reason for that is that the United States had to prevent the emergence of a Eurasian power where Europe, Western Europe and Central Europe and Eastern Europe and Russia would ultimately end up in some sort of similar economic form. And a lot of that conversation, by the way, was in the context of German reunification and the fear that a reunified Germany would make an alliance with Russia, and that would ultimately make this sort of U.S. Euro-Atlantic architecture, which is the center of gravity of the U.S. unipolar control of the world, that that would in fact go away. At the same time, of course, we know also in the George H.W. Bush administration, there is a separate process going on inside the Defense Department led by Dick Cheney and Paul Wolfowitz, which, you know, put forward the, the now infamous Wolfowitz Doctrine, which has been, you know, continually reaffirmed since 1992 in the various national defense strategies. But, you you know, in the National Security Council and in the Pentagon, even prior to the collapse of the Soviet Union, but as the Warsaw Pact was unraveling, the United States had set the stage for the overall conflict by basically determining that Europe must be an anti-Russia trench, that Europe, Western Europe especially, could not be lost to Russia. And what that means exactly in terms of lost is specifically that there should be no scenario where regardless of what those countries view the subjective and objective benefits are of working with Russia on security or anything else to be, that it was bad for the United States for them to have that sort of independent choice to work with another nuclear power, another potentially very strong country, and undermine the idea that the U.S. would maintain the preeminent unipolar hegemony over the world with the collapse of the Soviet Union, which of course was the whole reason they were waging the Cold War, right? Is that they didn't want any challenge to the unipolar U.S. hegemony that had emerged in the West from World War II, of course, against the socialist bloc, and now with the socialist bloc sort of moving away, they decided, well, we definitely don't want anyone else to be able to rise at all. And they moved forward. So, I mean, we've been using, I've been saying this in a number of different forums that, you know, NATO basically built the bomb, placed the bomb and lit the fuse for where we are right now. And, you know, whatever we, we want to say about, you know, Putin's actions. And I think we've said, you know, on several of these shows that, you know, not only was the rationale for in many ways, not you know, based in in factual presentations, but that in and of itself, it was hard to support something like this that has a lot of unforeseen repercussions, but a lot of negative repercussions. But it is difficult to condemn it when you understand the broader context that is there in terms of the attempt to isolate and surround and cut Russia off from any form of influence on the world stage. So, you know, I think it's important to hear what Putin is saying here, not because, you know, Putin is some sage, but it does give you some, you know, insight into those in the Russian political sphere and also into the people of Russia who do support the war of why they would support something like this. This, why they would end up in a war of this type. And it's not simply just the ravings of a madman or whatever. And I think the whole reason it's presented that way is to also cut off the ability for there to be a real diplomatic solution. Whether you think Putin is good, bad, or indifferent, the reality is Russia does exist. It does exist as a major country. It does exist as a major nuclear power. You know, it does exist as a country that, you know, is guaranteed to have influence in a region in which its own you know, history and culture is deeply embedded where because of the Soviet Union, especially there are, you know, a lot of issues in terms of diaspora and immigration and national minorities and all these other issues. So you don't have to love Putin or like him. You can, in fact, hate him, but you can't deny that these issues exist and that they're real and that there's no way to have a peaceful Europe without considering them. But Ultimately, you're not allowed to say that and you're not allowed to think about that because as much as these people want you to believe they aren't for war in NATO and to act like they're being, you know, to talk about we're not for a no-fly zone and looking like they have some level of restraint, the reality is is they, they are more than willing to risk war, including nuclear war, in order to make sure that the core principles of making sure that Europe is an anti-Russia trench remains. All right, let's go to Zelensky's speech. We have a few clips from the speech 
I'm going to start with the first one. It's a very emotional speech, of course. And and for us, Eugene, I mean, I want to just restate, we're not supporting Russia's invasion into Ukraine. We're not saying this was great, this was good. I mean, the horrible suffering of Ukrainians, the death and destruction of Ukraine, the death of many Russians. I mean, and not to mention the outcome for Russia and Russians being evicted from the world economy and the danger of a larger war. All of this is negative. So the point of trying to present what Putin is saying isn't an apology for what the Russians are doing. It's trying to help the audience understand why Russia did this. What are Russia's motives outside of just the the assertion that Putin is like this evil demonic force who's insane and, and thus doing insane things? We have to actually understand it. And then you have Zelensky. So it's this whole paradigm. There's heroes like Zelensky, and then there's traitors or demons, is a better way to put it, like Putin. And so history is really just these fight between good and evil. Well, no, it's not. And the United States, as we've said over and over again, could have easily prevented this and didn't actually want to prevent it. And I don't think is too unhappy about the way it's playing out. Otherwise, you wouldn't really have Zelensky come on into Congress and call for widening the war, including an attack against Russia, which would mean possibly nuclear war. You wouldn't let that happen if you were unhappy with what's going on right now. I think the American military industrial complex is very okay with this. Anyway, let's go to Zelensky. Again, the imagery so carefully choreographed in terms of having the maximum emotional impact on an American audience for the why the U.S. should bring the world to the brink of nuclear war. Let's start. Remember Pearl Harbor. Terrible morning of December 7, 1941, when your sky was black from the planes attacking you. Just remember it. Remember September the 11th, a terrible day in 20. 2001, when evil tried to turn your cities, independent territories, in battlefields. All right. So it's all about Pearl Harbor. It's about September 11th. You know, it's all the worst things that have ever happened to the United States. Again, Zelensky is leaving out part of the narrative, which is Putin has been saying for the last four months, and Zelensky said no to him most of the time, that the Russians wanted a guarantee that Ukraine would not be the place where advanced conventional and nuclear missiles would be placed on its border. Yeah. I mean, there's so many elements to this. You know, one, obviously those are not good parallels because obviously the U.S. went into wars and I'd say certainly after September 11th, deeply ill-advised conflicts that had nothing to do with 9-11. But the point being, there were direct attacks on the United States. I mean, this is Zelensky asking the U.S. to essentially launch or be prepared to launch World War III and risk the nuclear annihilation of all of its own citizens and the entire globe on the basis of the invasion of his country. Certainly can understand why you might feel strongly about that. But I mean, it just shows that, you know, it's not a, a clear historical parallel. It's just an attempt to pull at the heartstrings by, you know, throwing different things out there, just like he quoted Winston Churchill. And I'm not trying to, you know, just aggressively rip him, but I think we have to recognize that there is a, a level to this that really has a choreographed theatrical feel to it that's deliberately designed to stoke war tension rather than to have any sort of, you know— true, strong intellectual argument about what needs to happen here. And I think you point that out correctly, that there were many opportunities. I mean, the reality is, is the way this whole conflict started, and many people have forgotten it, is in the early part of 2021, Zelensky, in an attempt to improve his own political standing, starts, you know, throwing people in jail and charging them and shutting down TV networks and so on and so forth for being part of a, you know, so-called Russian conspiracy to take over the country. That leads Russia to start bringing more troops, you know, closer to the Ukrainian border. And then there's this whole period of saber rattling by Zelensky, it seems, in order to you know, show himself to be, I don't know, something, some sort of hero against Russia or whatever it may be. So the opposite of trying to make peace, certainly, even though he said he was going to seek a solution in eastern Ukraine, no moves were ever made for the Minsk II agreement. And it's important to, I think, remember that in the lead up to the invasion, you had all sorts of Ukrainian politicians on background briefing different media outlets saying straight up that there will be no implementation of Minsk II when that was brought up as a potential solution to it because the Ukrainian political system would never actually agree 
agreed to that. So, I mean, total intransigence. Certainly you have Jens Stoltenberg, the head of NATO, making this huge demonstrative show multiple, multiple times saying that Ukraine can join whatever alliance they want. They can join NATO, blah, 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 which, you know, was so unbelievably warlike because literally just last year in 2021, when Zelensky, during this similar sort of buildup, was coming to the United States, trying to, he actually even tried to say that they were going to let him in NATO and Biden was forced to say, no, we are not letting Ukraine join NATO. So no one even believed Ukraine was going to join NATO. No one even believed that the countries in NATO, no matter what they said, actually wanted Ukraine to join NATO. So instead of actually just stating what almost everyone knows to have been the unstated policy, because they wanted to maintain Ukraine as a chip against Russia to essentially make it a a part of the chessboard in a broader conflict against Russia, they were unwilling to say something that could have brought down the tensions and at least potentially led to a path to peace. So time and time again, we see this total and complete intransigence to do anything. Then the invasion happens. And now it's sort of like ignoring how you got in there in order to get out. I mean, if there's a path in, there's a path out. And if this aggressive militarization and pushing NATO up against the borders of Russia was the path in, then doubling down on that is not going to be the path out. In fact, it's only likely to harden both sides of the conflict, deepen the conflict. And even if it changes forms into some sort of insurgency to make the outcome of it so much more worse and so much more deadly for the people of Ukraine, Russia, Europe, really all around the world, when you look at the impact of this economic war, which because of many different things, including food issues, you know, is raising the idea of hunger in many nations across the globe. I mean, really, really just unbelievable in a way to see this presented as a way that there's a way to shoot your way out of this thing, which more or less was the nature of Zelensky's presentation to Congress. And it has to be said that it worked, that Congress, all the conversation about Congress is how they're all getting around and sitting around and talking about how they're going to find a way to send even more weapons to Ukraine, including this switchblade drone they want to send now, which is one of these so-called kamikaze drones, which means you put a little warhead on it, you can carry it in a backpack, you launch it, and then you use it almost like a form of artillery because it can then crash into tanks and things like that. And again, this is after they've already sent 600 Stinger missiles, 2,600 Javelin anti-tank rockets, all sorts of ammunition and small arms. Now we're going to drones. They might try to give them S-300 missiles. There's the possibility even of planes coming from third-party countries. And then, of course, the no-fly zone overhanging the whole thing. So, you know, it was really quite the the presentation in front of Congress introduced by Nancy Pelosi, of course, the Speaker of the House, which, you know, to me makes the whole thing almost like an endorsement by Congress of these positions. And it really is scary, honestly, the way some of these things seem to be trending in terms of what the possible next couple of weeks could look like. Pelosi started uh, her introduction of Zelensky by saying, glory to Ukraine. I was like, okay, here's the Democrats control the House. They control the Senate. They have the White House. They couldn't pass these basic important things for working class people in the United States in the so-called Build Back Better bill. They couldn't do that, but they could unite with each other and unite with the Republicans to spend now billions and billions of dollars more on war. The Congress actually gave the Department of Defense $13 billion more than it actually asked for earlier this week. You have the statistics, Eugene, which I know you're following. Childhood poverty in the United States spiked 41% just in the month of January because Congress refused to extend all of these aid provisions on an emergency basis for working class and poor families. And yet they have this glory to Ukraine, we can unite. And what is it for? Uh, The possible scenario of nuclear war. I want to play another clip from Zelensky, again, because people have to understand, as you're pointing out, it's theatrical, it's choreographed, and it has a goal. And the goal is something that we all should oppose. A no-fly zone is not only a bad idea, it's a terrible idea. You can't have a more dangerous idea than a no-fly zone. A lot of people in the United States think, oh, a no-fly zone, that means Russian planes can't drop bombs on Ukrainians. That's a good idea. But what they don't understand is what a no-fly zone actually is and what it will lead to. Let's listen to Zelensky one more time, then I want to get your thoughts. This is a terror that Europe has not seen, has not seen for 80 years. And we are asking for a reply, for an answer uh, to this uh, terror from the whole world. Is this a lot to ask for to create a no-fly zone zone over Ukraine to save people? Is this too much to ask? Humanitarian no-fly zone, something that Ukraine, uh, that Russia would not be able to terrorize our 
free cities. Eugene, a humanitarian no-fly zone. Anyway, let's talk about what this really means. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that you know, this also comes one day after there is a meeting between Zelensky and a number of Central European leaders. And Mr. Kaczynski is the head of the Law and Justice Ruling Party in Poland, who's the deputy prime minister, is proposing not just a huge, quote unquote, humanitarian no fly zone, but a humanitarian peacekeeping force, quote unquote, essentially a NATO military unit. And he explicitly name checked NATO to go into Ukraine and secure a certain amount of territory, be covered by a NATO no-fly zone and other forms of, you know, military power in order to be able to essentially, you know, become a part of the war effort against Russia. So a major sort of escalation there also coming shortly after Poland, you know, sort of did a 180 and started proposing this very aggressive plan that even the Pentagon has rejected to send MiG-29s there. But yeah, I think that people are, and when you look at a lot of the polls, you can see that people will say they support a no-fly zone, but some of the same polls ask, do you support direct confrontation or war with Russia, and then almost no one says yes. So clearly there's a discrepancy here. I think that Zelensky in many ways has tried to, along with others, and I I don't want to just blame Zelensky. I mean, there are a number of people in the United States also arguing for this. The Wall Street Journal's arguing for this. There are people in, you know, the European elite sphere who are also arguing for this. For everyone who's arguing for this, there's also a little bit of gray area being introduced to, I think, deliberately confuse people. I mean, when Zelensky was asked directly on ABC News if he understood the reason why many people were wary is because of the possibility he could start World War III. He then tried to kind of dissemble a little bit and make it seem like it wasn't about planes, but it's about shooting down missiles and all these other elements. Well, the Wall Street Journal, when they were talking about this issue, said, well, I mean, you know, everyone's saying it's World War III, but if, you know, there's a conflict between Russia and the United States, but realistically, if the U.S. shoots down a Russian plane, are they going to launch a nuclear weapon? Are they going to launch chemical weapons? It's just a bluff and we have to call their bluff. And so there's all this desire to sort of try to create the perception that, well, there's some way that you can do this that won't lead to World War III. And I'm sure, you know, you and I could sit here and and perhaps, you know, game plan some fantastical scenario where that's the case. But the very ambiguity of it is, in fact, the point. I mean, the very fact that you don't know exactly what will happen is exactly why it's so scary and exactly where it could potentially lead. I mean, okay, the U.S. shoots down a a Russian jet. Because to have a no-fly zone, you have to enforce it. Every no-fly zone in the history of no-fly zones, they must be enforced. So the U.S. shoots down a Russian jet. Russia maybe then decides to sink a U.S. ship. Then maybe the U.S. says, okay, well, we're going to sink a Russian ship. And then what happens? So, I mean, it doesn't even have to just be U.S. shoots down a Russian plane, Russia shoots a nuclear weapon. It's just the very fact that the no-fly zone opens up the possibility of spiraling into a greater conflict. And we've talked about this before, and it's the number one principle or one of the number one principles of nuclear warfare, the so-called escalation ladder. And as they always say, it's easier to go up than it is to come down. You take a bellicose move, your opponent doesn't want to look weak in the face of a bellicose move, so they take another bellicose move hoping that you'll back down. But then you feel you can't back down, so you take another bellicose move. And that's exactly the type of logic that the idea of a no-fly zone builds into. So the issue isn't about, you know, just the the particulars of exactly what's going to happen and exactly which scenario and all the attempts to try to spin these various scenarios for how it could definitely work are all totally besides the point. The point is, is that it locks you into a military logic of escalation that I think in the history of most wars has failed to, in fact, decrease the war. I mean, the idea of of heavily increasing your offensive actions in order to de-escalate the conflict is something that's often talked about, but that I think almost never does it really work. All it does is continue to deepen the conflict and cause more devastation and more destruction. Now, that might ultimately lead to one side winning or another side winning, but it certainly isn't something that is improving the space for dialogue and diplomacy and so on and so forth. So, you know, here we are, and I think what, again, and I've said this before, is a big inflection point moment. I mean, there obviously and clearly, and again, this is the point that needs to be made, there are ways to de-escalate this. And again, we've heard this from the Ukrainian side. We had Zelensky saying that he recognizes Ukraine can never join NATO. You had the foreign minister there in Istanbul, I think it was Istanbul, maybe Ankara, with Lavrov presenting a proposal saying they recognize Ukraine has to be neutral. You have Macron saying the only way to really resolve this conflict is to have collective security where Russia is involved as a partner as opposed 
opposed to a adversary in terms of security in Europe. You have Boris Johnson making the point that everyone knows Ukraine is not going to join NATO anytime soon. So obviously the contours of a diplomatic solution are obviously there. Now, there are a lot of details and things like that that would have to be worked out, but they're there. But I think we're at this inflection point where those who, even though they probably don't want to come out and just say it that aggressively, although there are some who are coming out and saying it quite aggressively, ultimately feel that there should be a showdown with Russia, that there should be a military showdown between NATO and Russia. And I think some of these people are so out there, they actually probably think they can win and that there is some sort of, you know, scenario. And I think that's another thing, Brian, that's maybe worth talking about a little bit is I think there is a a subset of people in this sort of politico military economic elite in the West who have always thought in the post-nuclear era, there is a way to wage a nuclear war and win. And that those who are opposed to nuclear war are soft somehow and, you know, woolly headed liberal communist dupes or whatever they may have said during the Cold War. But you could certainly say it better than I could. And that there's always been a belief that, yes, we should confront these people militarily because we can back them down. And even if we have to lose, use nuclear weapons, we can do it in a way that doesn't totally destroy the globe or the United States of America. Now, that's completely delusional in every possible scenario of what nuclear war looks like. But I do think there is a war party here of individuals who, even if they probably, if we put them on the spot, would not say, yes, I'm for World War III, feel that we should risk World War III in order to achieve the geostrategic goal of the United States to maintain unipolar hegemony over the entire globe. And so it's really, is there going to be a de-escalation along a very clear path, even though it would be a rocky and a tricky and a difficult path, but a very clear path to some form of de-escalation and hopefully peace? Or is there going to be a tipping of this into a deeper, deeper conflict where many, many more people are going to die, where there could even be a nuclear war? And even short of nuclear war, just a huge escalation of the war as it exists already is going to be massively devastating for people in Ukraine and people around the world who are depending on various different goods and services that are either skyrocketing in price or can't be shipped because of the war and the conflict in Eastern Europe. The U.S. media is really part of the problem. The corporate-owned, the capitalist media, they're really part of the problem. I don't know what's in their brains, but you know, certainly the right wing calls MSNBC or the other networks liberal media. I mean, when I was growing up, liberal was sort of identified with like not having a nuclear war with the Soviet Union. It was like ban the bomb or peace now or but they, these so-called liberals are not liberal like that at all. They're very, very right wing. I can remember, and this speaks to your point, that Jake Tapper in the Democratic Party primaries was ripping Elizabeth Warren because she said publicly that the U.S. should renounce the first use of nuclear weapons, a first strike option. And and Tapper, I don't, I'm sure you remember it. Tapper was like, oh, you're giving up this amazing power that the United States could have. Well, what what does that mean? That means. We're not vowing to not launch a nuclear war first. If you launch a nuclear war first, you would think, well, that means everybody's going to die, right? Nuclear war means the devastation of the human race as we know it, the end of society as we know it. But there's this line of thinking, and this is, I think, the point that you're getting at, where there's a section in the military-industrial media complex that actually thinks... No, we actually can win a nuclear war. And the way it would work is if we unload on the enemy and take out most of their missiles and their missile silos and most of their political you know, control, operational control centers of, of authority, if we launch first, and even if they counterattack and get some of their missiles, let's say they get 5% of their missiles, we'll have missile defense shields set up so that we can capture that remnant of their nuclear arsenal. So the first strike is based on having missile defense shields. Now, the U.S. is building them in Eastern Europe now, in Romania, in Poland. The U.S. canceled the anti-ballistic missile treaty that barred countries, the Soviet Union and later Russia and the United States, from building missile defense shields such that it would make the possibility of nuclear war actually feasible as opposed to mutually assured destruction. And by the way, Putin, I read a speech by Putin a few years ago. He said things really got went downhill when Bush unilaterally canceled the ABM treaty, anti-ballistic missile treaty. That was 2002. Then in 2019, Trump cancels the INF treaty, meaning whether Ukraine formally becomes part of NATO or not, 
if the U.S. is no longer prohibited from putting missiles that have a three to 600 mile range and a flight time of six or seven minutes, or in some cases, three minutes to their Russian targets, if they've no longer prohibited from doing that by unilaterally canceling that treaty too, then Russia is going to come to the conclusion in NATO or not in NATO formally, what's going to happen is that America is going to take advantage of the cancellation of these treaties to get a first strike advantage against us. And Putin's speech on February 24th, he talks about it. He basically said Stalin tried to appease Germany in 1939 by signing a pact with Germany, a non-aggression pact, instead of more vigorously getting ready for the war. Of course, Russia was getting ready for the war. The Soviet Union was. But he criticizes Stalin. And I thought it was very noteworthy because he basically says there are moments when war is coming. War, it's inevitable. And instead of waiting and appeasing the enemy, you have to be proactive. And I think I mean, we're not embracing what Russia has done by any means. I think it's terrible. I think it's going to hurt everyone, including Russia. But the logic was war is coming. The Americans won't stop. They're going to cancel all these treaties. They're going to put advanced weapons on our border. We won't be able to defend against them. We must act. We must act now. And we're going to take all of the consequences. I mean, that's Putin's thinking. But you kind of actually understand the thinking if, one, you take the time to read his comments and also look at the actual history that is decontextualized or missing from the American media narrative. Yeah, I mean, the American media, it's, you know, honestly shameful, some of the things that people are saying. You know, I I mentioned it earlier, uh, Ryan Grimm from The Intercept, but then they also put together a little video of some of the other questions at that same press conference yesterday with Jen Psaki. And I I have to say, I was a little taken aback at the the just extreme— you know, warlike nature of the questions that were being asked. One of the reporters, the individuals were not identified by outlets, I can't say. You know, one of the reporters said to Jen Psaki, well, you know, Zelensky's asking you for X, Y, Z, and you're saying for one, two, three reasons you can't do that, but Zelensky knows what the Ukrainians need more than you do, so why is the U.S. government not giving him everything he needs? And I just thought, what an amazing way to frame that question. I mean, it's rather than to frame the question whether or not there is a logical sort of rationale for what the United States is doing, the assumption is basically that there is no logical rationale for the United States to deny anything to President Zelensky, and it just, if that's the mentality that you see, and, and we've seen so much just incredible war propaganda and, and, you know, disgusting lies. You know, Michael McFaul, of course, who was deeply criticized in the Rachel Maddow show for, you know, more or less saying that Putin was worse than Hitler and honestly downplaying Hitler's murder of millions of people by saying Hitler never killed any Germans. I mean, what is even going on? I mean, these are things that are so demonstrably untrue and so massively offensive to those who have been the victims of so many crimes across the history of the world. I mean, if some people would say, oh, you shouldn't be surprised, but I think we should at least have some level of outrage because there's no real attempt to provide any sort of counterpoint, to put any sort of alternative view forward, to give any sort of understanding of what the Russian perspective is, what an anti-war perspective is, or anything like that in the mainstream media. just straight up parroting every single extremely warlike narrative, no matter what, in order to, you know, set the stage and to set the tone. So, you know, it's one of those things that we don't know exactly what's happening, but there are obviously powerful forces working here around this whole thing that absolutely want to see the situation made as warlike as possible. I think because there are some who do want World War III, or if not World War III, they're at least willing to risk it because they think they can win in that kind of showdown. And I think there's those, and I think this also includes President Biden and many others who are one step behind that where they're willing to say, okay, we won't do a no-fly zone for now and to sort of draw the red line at the NATO countries, you know, at least for now, because they don't want to see World War III. But I think they do and are happy to see, and I think you spoke to this a little bit earlier, some of the things that have taken place. I mean, the block discipline that's been reinforced inside of NATO. I mean, you have Olaf Scholz come into the head of Germany, and the first thing he basically has to do as the head of the country is not only reaffirm how great NATO is, but start a rearmament of Germany that no no German leader in the post-World War II era has actually been able to pull off. Now, there are some of them who've talked about it. The current EU commissioner, Ursula von der Leyen, when she was defense minister under Angela Merkel, she was trying to use the threat of quote-unquote terrorism in Africa to really rebuild the German military. Didn't really fully work. Now you have Scholz, $100 billion for the German military. NATO's so great. Russia's so terrible. Super warlike. You have all these politicians in France and Germany, other places that were sort of part of the economic relationships between Russia and 
and Europe running the other way, leaving boards, cutting ties, companies leaving, you know, and reaffirming the desire to do what the United States wants them to do, which is to take less Russian gas and Russian oil and get it from other places or whatever it may be. You know, we're just seeing all these various different repercussions that have come into play inside of Europe that have strengthened the hand of the United States. It has weakened the hand of all opponents of NATO all across the European continent who are really on the back foot and people are either being quiet or they've thrown away a lot of their criticism, except for a few who continue to stand up and continue to be counted around the real episode for peace. But obviously you had NATO for some time now, really, I think in the Trump administration is paradoxical, but certainly the Trump administration, which was very warlike, was very critical of NATO in many ways. Trump himself was very critical of NATO. And I think this even sort of slightly predates Trump in some of the conversations around the relationship in the Obama, starting in the late Obama years of what is NATO's relationship to the war on terror. And many people kind of ridiculing NATO's attempt to pivot to the war on terror as showing how totally, you know, inadequate it was. It just wasn't useful anymore. It didn't serve any purpose that perhaps there should be different arrangements and different things going on. You could see already in Europe, people like Macron, even to a lesser extent, Merkel and others who obviously wanted to have some independence from the U.S. foreign policy stance because they could see that Europe was being hurt by the new Cold War against China and the attempt to isolate against Russia. So they were pushing back against U.S. attempts for that. Obviously, that was a huge point of friction between Germany and the U.S. during the Trump presidency is the issue of Germany not being willing to get totally on board with the anti-Russia train being pushed by the Trump administration, so-called pro-Russia. That was obviously fake. But the point being here is you can see that this has reaffirmed and re-strengthened the NATO military alliance. It's gotten more money, more weapons, more you know so-called reason to exist. More people generally support the alliance. So I think really in a lot of ways, you have both the direct warmongers who want to at least be willing to risk a nuclear war and think you can win it if it comes because they want to make sure the U.S. unipolar hegemony is 100% secure and they're willing to crush whoever is against it by means of war, or at least attempt to. Then you have that sort of second rank that I think includes Biden and others, which is an attempt to use this crisis to be as bellicose as possible in order to reaffirm the central you know, sort of guiding architecture of this idea of U.S. unipolar hegemony in the European context, and that's the maintenance of NATO to maintain Europe as an anti-Russia trench. Zelensky said, and we played the clip, he said, this is a terror that Europe has not seen for 80 years, meaning the Russian invasion. I want to talk about that a little bit, because there was, of course, Eugene, the bombing of Yugoslavia between March and early June 1999, Yugoslavia, for those who might not know, was the last remaining socialist government in Europe after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the socialist camp. And the United States went to war against Yugoslavia in 1995. When I say the United States, United States and NATO. And then even more ferociously in 1999, and NATO dropped 28,000 bombs and missiles on Yugoslavia. And then at the end, on June Third, the Milosevic government in Yugoslavia, which was completely demonized and brought to The Hague for basically a kangaroo court staged trial for war crimes, meaning only he or the American victims could be tried. The, the Americans or NATO perpetrators of war crimes could not be tried. Uh, but Milosevic on June 3rd basically capitulates to NATO because the U.S. Clinton administration and NATO said, if you don't capitulate right now, if you don't give in to all of our demands right now, we're going to launch a ground war. That was scheduled for June 5th, 1999. I just want to mention that for people. So NATO dropped 28,000 bombs and missiles, and every day they were on TV talking about, even when they bombed you know, car caravans with civilians, NATO representatives that can remember talking and said, well, these were, these were democratic countries doing the bombing, like as if the people who were just destroyed on the ground in Yugoslavia would have been thankful and said, gosh, I'm glad that bomb was dropped by a democratic country. I mean, but then you think, Eugene, about how how do people in Libya think about this? How do people in Syria think about this? How do people in Iraq think about this? Putin talked a lot about that. Or the people in Yemen, this is a terror that Europe has not seen for 80 years. But it's a minor terror compared to what the United States did in Vietnam. I'm not saying it's not a terror, but Vietnam or Korea or what's happening to the people in Yemen or the people in Iraq or the people in Libya, as if you know non-European lives don't actually even fit into this equation. This is all about violence coming to Europe when it's the United States and its, quote, NATO partners that have been inflicting 
real violence and murder against Yugoslavia in Europe, but mainly against non-European countries. And again, it doesn't even register in the American corporate media as something like that should be exposed. No, I think it's a good point. And I think it, you know, it also goes back to this sort of demonization, Putin is a madman thing, because I think so much of the historical memory around the war in Yugoslavia and part of why, you know, people can even make these statements is the, you know, level of demonization around Slobodan Milosevic was such that, you know, anything went because he was such a terrible monster in the eyes of the West that whatever happens, happens. I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was April 99, where NATO bombed a refugee column and killed 73 mm -hmm. people. And they initially tried to say that it was a military convoy. And I think they ultimately said they had deep regrets when they had to admit it. I think there was at least, at least according to Human Rights Watch, however you want to take that, 90 separate incidents where civilians were killed due to NATO bombing. You know, I don't know the exact number of people, but obviously you have these, you know, very brazen attacks that were taking place in these NATO bombings. But because the so-called opponent was considered to be in this sort of demon category, then almost anything goes in any circumstance and people just forget about it or justify it or whatever it may be. And at the time, I'd certainly I, I can remember this to some degree, you know, it was never really fully brought to the forefront by the Western media because again, since there is a demonization going on against Milosevic, whatever one thinks about Milosevic, it meant that the media was not going to cover the broader realities of what the NATO bombs were doing. And I could say being from where I'm from, Charlottesville, Virginia, which is a site for the International Refugee committee, many, many people came as refugees to our town, to our city, went to school with me. And anyone who thinks that the war in Yugoslavia wasn't serious, well, you got another thing coming. And the stories that people have, I've heard personally from people who've been victimized, you know, certainly on all sides, but in this case, based on what we're talking about, in terms of NATO, in terms of U.S. troops, is truly horrific. But yeah, I, I mean, I think that that historical memory is wiped out. I think there's also a huge amount of you know, racism to the entire element of sort of, you know, oh, Europe, this is this attack against Europe is so bad and Europe, it's not warlike and it's peaceful and everything we've seen about the, the people are so sympathetic because they have blonde hair and blue eyes. And it speaks to the point that you're making too, is that also a lot of the reason NATO hasn't gotten the same criticism is so many of their victims have not fit that profile. And the point you made about Libya is 100% true. I mean, it, you know, listen, I really hope that all the refugees who are fleeing Ukraine find a good, safe place to stay and a stable way to survive until they can return to their homes, hopefully in a sustainable way without, you know, too much have been damaged and so on and so forth. And I'm not upset that people are taking millions of refugees, but it's unbelievable when you look at the links that Europe has gone to to keep refugees coming into the continent, into Western Europe, into the EU, not just from Libya, but coming through Libya, coming from Sub-Saharan Africa and the destruction that's going on there economically and militarily, which also has its own links to neocolonialism and imperialism. I mean, you look at Frontex, the so-called border agency that has turned the Mediterranean into a graveyard. You look at Poland, where they were just beating and brutalizing people coming from the Middle East, trying to get into the country. I mean, these you know policies have been so incredibly destructive in terms of refugees and immigrants trying to come into the EU. And now you have this sort of acceptable refugee reality. And I think so much of, of how this whole thing is framed, how NATO is presented to us, how Europe is sort of held up on a pedestal and how it seemed is all designed to create this deeper and premature of the goodness and the rightness of the Western cause. And there's an element of bigotry in this too. Russia's sort of an evil Slavic enemy that you can fit in with the Chinese and, you know, the bad, quote unquote, Middle Eastern and West Asian countries, Iran and others, and this whole sense of kind of non-Western, which in a way really means non-white evils that are, you know, against democracy and for authoritarianism and for totalitarianism or are backward and open to exploitation by terrorist groups. And, you know, when you have this kind of narrative, it then opens up a big box of, you know, really brutal tools that you can bring out because there's a level of desensitization, a level of dehumanization that goes along with all of this in order to facilitate these sorts of policies, these brutal policies, whether they be sanctions or whether they be wars. And then I think it allows the creation of a sense of rightness in terms of the cause of groups like NATO to where the issue of the broader context of how we got here, that we've been talking about this entire show, that there's a path in and there's a path out, but it really means the dissolution of 
NATO and the changing over from this idea that Europe should be an anti-Russia trench, you know, all that goes out the window because everything turns into a good, evil, black and white sort of thing because of the way these narratives are shaped. And the narratives are really shaped by the media. I mean, most people get their information from the media. Even if you never really watch the news, when something happens, you go to the mainstream media by and large because that's what's out there and easily available. And they're deeply complicit in shaping this sort of mental terrain, if you will, that allows not only these sorts of wars to take place, but creates the kind of, you know, the sort of almost, maybe not even fully willful, almost sort of subconscious ignorance that is creeping into people's minds that turns them off to looking at the broader context and just dismissing that as Russian propaganda and thus unable to really intelligently engage in terms of what their own government should be doing in order to get get on that road, get on that path out of this conflict and towards de-escalation and peace. Yeah, and if you don't watch the mainstream news, well, maybe your neighbors do or your coworkers or another family member. And, you know, as Mark said, and we've said it over and over again on this show, that the ideas of any society are the ideas of its ruling class. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't differences of opinion, but when the ruling class is united, which it really clearly is right now, the United States ruling class is very united. You know, they couldn't agree to build back better. Or they can't agree to restore bridges. You know, half the states are evicting hundreds of thousands of people from Medicaid right now, while some of the states are defending it. There are elements of disunity. But when it comes to this, when it comes to war with Russia and unity behind the military industrial complex, when you get to the issue of war, there's unity. And so the media really does shape the ideas of our society, which is why having this show or Breakthrough News and other alternative media, which is being highly censored right now, is actually very critically important. I mean, when you when you think about how the U.S. has, again, presented the issue of, of Europe in particular, I was thinking back to, you know, that movie Hearts and Minds about the Vietnam War. And of course, I grew up as a young person, you know, having to think every year, am I going to be drafted? Will I be drafted? You know, for all young boys or men or young teenagers, you know, this was the question in the 1960s. And it was clear that the U.S. wasn't winning the war in Vietnam. General William Westmoreland actually gives this interview. He's the head of U.S. military forces, and he's trying to explain what constitutes the tenacity, the resilience, the militancy of the people in Vietnam. Why are they winning? And he says, and he says this openly, he said, well, you know, People in the Orient don't think of human life the way we do in the West. They don't value human life the way we do. And I was thinking, okay, you couldn't talk like that now. You could talk like that in 1970. But that's actually the promoted idea that European lives or lives of American allies in Europe, they mean something. Where the Syrians, nah, Libyans, no. The people in Ivory Coast, who were, you know, of course, invaded by France, or the other people where the the people are basically not white, as you're saying, that sort of systematic devaluation of other people or not caring, like they don't get to speak before both houses of Congress and have all of the media talk about that. So it sort of fortifies these white supremacist institutions and cultural norms that Sometimes you don't have to be openly racist to promote racism. And I think we have a very heavy dose of this. Again, some of the commentators on CNN said, well, I have to watch my words. And I was saying, like, these aren't like people from Syria or Iraq. But they didn't watch their words. They were pretty open about it. Anyway, this is not a new phenomenon, but it's a reinforced phenomenon right now. No, I think that's a good point. And I'm, you know, it all dovetails together when you, you know, bring in the Vietnam War and the Westmoreland piece, because part of, you know, what made that war turn the way it turned was the fact that you had elements of the mainstream media that were willing to, and the broader sort of intelligentsia, that were willing to break ranks with the mainstream consensus around what was going on in Vietnam. And again, you were there, I was not there, but so, you know, I'm only speaking sort of historically, but I think it's relatively clear when you look at the level of opposition to the war that that obviously played a factor. And, you know, I think many people in the media were were moved by, you know, the tremendous destruction that was happening. But I say that just to say the military has learned from that. I mean, we know for 
a fact that the whole reason this sort of embedded journalist thing that happened in the Iraq war really took place because of the lessons that the Pentagon took from the Vietnam War, which is if you just let journalists hop on a helicopter and go wherever they're going to go, some of them are going to report what actually took place. And, you know, you saw that in, in many different circumstances, most notably in the Battle of, of Hue, where the military just told a totally fake story until several reporters showed up there and said, wait a second, this is a huge battle and all these people are dying. But they were willing to hide hundreds of people being killed to make it look like they weren't losing. But, you know, in the context of where we are now, you have the direct, you know, interrelation of the reporters on the ground with the military in such a way that it helps them manage the narrative. They do that on purpose. We know the same thing about the all-volunteer military. I mean, the idea of Vietnam War syndrome was a real thing. There were many, many people who were like, yeah, this is a good lesson about why we shouldn't be engaging in these sorts of conflicts. We should be very skeptical about drives to war and so on and so forth. And so the military industrial complex, the militarist machine in the Pentagon, they've learned from this. They have calibrated from this and they've done everything possible to make it that when they do things like this now, that they're in a media environment that's much more controlled, that's much tighter. And I think, you know, there's a whole separate conversation around that. But I think it is an important parallel and an important reality and something that's also worth remembering in terms of the issue of context. I mean, the world famous book that came out at that time, The Best and the Brightest by David Halberstam, you know, the whole point of the book was that part of the reason the Vietnam thing went the way that it did, the Vietnam War, as it were, was that the designs of imperial reality were pushed forward at odds with their imperial fantasy were pushed forward at odds with reality, that all of the context about Asia that was deeply known by many, many people, the information was widely available, showed quite clearly that this was never going to succeed and never going to work, but that there was a deliberate attempt to suppress, not a mistake, there was a deliberate attempt to suppress all of the information and all the individuals who were trying to promote this information that would have given anything separate to the idea that there should be massive escalation in Vietnam because the overall overarching goal to quote unquote contain and counter communism was more important than actual facts and reality, no matter how many people on both sides died. And that's what you get when you refuse to look at the context, when you refuse to look at the reality, when you don't want to understand the nuances and the sophistication of particular regions of the world and why things are the way they are, even if maybe you don't agree with the people who are in that space. And I think we're in a similar situation now where every single person that comes forward with any oppositional view at all, no matter how fact-based, is being totally pushed out and totally marginalized in the conversation, which means people can't even have an informed debate over what to do or what not to do because they aren't given the information to actually be able to do it. And those who have that information are not allowed to enter the public sphere. And to the extent they exist inside the government, they are suppressed and pushed out. And I think we'll probably learn, like we did in Vietnam, that there are probably people all through the government who have probably tried to say, hey, maybe we shouldn't do this. And there have been deliberate attempts to suppress that and make sure that those views were not a part of the policymaking process. So, you know, these things aren't mistakes. I mean, they're 100% deliberate because when you have a goal, facts become inconvenient. When you have a goal that is about unipolar world, imperialist hegemony, controlling everything, being the policeman of the world, however you want to talk about it, if that's your goal, you can't let the facts get in the way. And quite frankly, I think that that's a very scary moment to be in and where we are right now, that there really is no one in the mainstream sphere willing to, to even question it. I mean, forget where you land, to even question it or allow someone to bring on an oppositional viewpoint. And I think that that is deeply problematic. And sadly, the only people People bringing any sort of oppositional viewpoint in the mainstream media are these far-right individuals who are doing it for all the wrong reasons. Because rather than promote a policy of peace and global cooperation to solve humanity, they just want to go into an isolationist type of stance where you have the world's biggest military, all the world's most nuclear weapons, and you just sort of shut up in your own borders, but ready to launch a nuclear weapon and obliterate someone when they offend you or whatever in the way that Trump talks. And so, you know, we're really sort of stuck between totally inadequate options from the military, politico, economic elites in this country who are all kind of one thing that is potentially leading us to a place that we can't come back from, not just as a country, but as a species. So important. Eugene, in the run-up to the Iraq war, I was one of the founders of the Answer Coalition right after September 11th. We were organizing mass protests against the pending, looming war with Iraq. And, you know, we were bringing out hundreds of thousands of people almost every month. And I was on MSNBC and I was on CNN and even Fox News and CNBC. And it wasn't just me. There was maybe, I don't know, maybe there was five to 10 people who were kind of had an anti-war position. They were allowed to come on to the media. 
And then about, about two months or three months before the war started, all the invitations stopped. The studios were reconfigured. They now look like battlefields and the map of Iraq was on the floor. And instead of having any anti-war voices, you had like colonels and retired colonels and generals and admirals talking about the war is coming and this is how it's going to happen. And the troops will move from Kuwait or move from Saudi Arabia. The entire discussion was changed and you were, the thing was only about the tactics of the war. My last interview on MSNBC, I was attacked by somebody when I was saying Iraq does not have weapons of mass destruction. I actually knew because I had been to Iraq many times. I had studied it. I had followed it. You know, I knew the weapons inspectors had looked 13,000 different weapons inspections on this small country. There were no weapons of mass destruction. And when I said that, this was the last interview on MSNBC, the person who I was debating said, you're an agent of Saddam Hussein. You're an agent. You're you're part of the espionage efforts or the intelligence efforts of the Iraqi government. And that was it. And the point that you're making is that if you try to have an objective report, yes, I was anti-war, but I also was based my arguments on facts and knowledge. But that wasn't enough because the, the religious moment, the moment where as an article of faith, you had to be either with the military industrial complex, with the war makers, or you were really part of the enemy. That's the political mood right now, which makes it even more difficult to sort of sound the alarm that if the right wing and the militarists keep promoting the the no-fly zone is like, yes, we must do this to save the Ukrainians and not have any voice say, look, this means we're heading towards nuclear war. It means the Ukraine will be extinguished as a country and Ukrainians will be gone. And so will lots of other people. If you even try to say any of this right now, you're labeled as somehow an apologist for the Russian invasion. And, you know, I know that political activists are going out around the country right now. These are the rank and file of the anti-war movement distributing brochures like this one, why we should oppose a no-fly zone over Ukraine. People, activists, organizers are going out to try to reach the people in this kind of grassroots organizing method with brochures and leaflets, because frankly, the mass media won't let us on and the alternative media is being censored and silenced all over the place. So we have no other option. But the point that I'm making, Eugene, is that even though it's tough right now, we have to fight for peace. If you're against the war, fight for peace in a meaningful way. It's not about protesting or just condemning Russia, okay, that's pretty easy for people to do, and lots of people are doing it. But the way to peace, and this is where I want to end, the way to peace is not to escalate the war, but to go back to the negotiating table and to absolutely consider that Russia's security concerns are legitimate, that they have to be met. Escalation will not end the war. Escalation may end the human race, but it's not the road to peace. Anyway, I'll give you the final word. No, I, I think that's very well said. I mean, I think that, you know, it's obvious in the moment, I think the opponents of unjust wars are always assailed in the worst possible way and then almost always vindicated subsequently. I mean, we talk about the Vietnam War quite a bit. Well, there are many people who are against the war, obviously a very large number, but there are also many who were for the war and opponents of the war were viciously assailed and, and attacked in all sorts of ways by the state. You think about someone like Eugene Debs, who of course was jailed for his opposition to World War One, now widely considered considered to have been engaged in deep acts of bravery when he opposed that war. And, you know, we could go on and on and on, but I think that you can't necessarily just choose what you're going to do by what's popular if you want to do what's right. And I think this is a moment where the possibility of change is possible. I mean, again, you can see the clear outlines of a potential path to peace. Not that it's easy, but you can see the clear outlines. But the only way for that to happen is to prevent this massive, just completely unthinking, well, I guess it is thinking in many people's cases, a lot of people don't want to think. They're just going along with it. Rush to drastically escalate the conflict to show how doubling down on escalation is exactly what got us here in the first place. It's not going to be the way that gets us out. We have to take an aggressive path towards peace, certainly as a globe, but certainly from the point of view of the United States government, certainly from the point of view of NATO, which means taking a step back, addressing the issues, establishing a new sort of modality away from making Europe an anti-Russia trench, and then you might lay the groundwork and the foundations to really have a more sustainable 
valuable piece over the longer term. So I think people should feel some level of agency. They shouldn't just feel like they're watching this as objects. They should act as subjects. It's right for people to feel like, I want to do something to try to help. That's right. That's good. That's not a bad impulse to have. But if you want to do something to help, you cannot be backing this escalation and this war drive because that's not helping. As Fred Hampton said, peace if you're ready to fight for it, Eugene. I mean, that's the point. People have to be ready to fight for peace. And that's the task of the day. Eugene Perrier, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.